welcome to season four of the Anti-Social Studies Podcast. My name is Emily Glankler. I'm a high school history teacher and all-around history nerd in Austin, Texas. And for those of you who are maybe just finding this podcast, uh, there's three seasons that you can go back, go back and catch up on. Uh, they're a little bit different than what you're going to see in this upcoming season. So season one went over all of world history. Season two, I dived into some current events and historical context. And season three covered all of U.S. history, and it only took me like many, many years to get through it. I'm now shifting what my format is going to look like for this new season, and I'm really excited about it. So this season, I'm bringing a ton of guests on. These are all other fellow history nerds that are coming on to just have a conversation with me about something very specific from history that probably you've never learned about or we've all just kind of misunderstood. There are two reasons that I'm changing my format. One is just because I, through TikTok and podcasting and teaching, I've been able to make some really incredible connections with some really smart and fascinating people all around the country. And I'm really excited to be able to talk to them for longer than just a few minutes and just kind of stitching their videos and actually bring them on my podcast and have them teach me about something that they're an expert on and also have me teach them about something that I'm an expert on. I think it'll be a really fun way to show people like how history nerds just continue learning, how I don't know everything about history and it's really fun to learn new things and to listen to experts. Real talk though, the other reason why I'm changing my format this way is that I will hopefully be able to make a lot more episodes more consistently because I won't have to write down a script anymore. So what I want to let you know is that what you can expect from these episodes is for them to be a lot more frequent, a lot more engaging and entertaining. It's me having a conversation with another human person, but also they're not going to be scripted, right? By definition, the first few seasons of this podcast, I literally wrote out word for word exactly what I was going to say in every episode. And that was incredible and well researched and well thought out and it took me forever. And so the trade-off, because you know, mental health is a thing and I want to reclaim some of my time, is that I'm going to commit to putting out more episodes and they might be slightly less polished. There might be a few more likes in there that if my dad is listening, he'll sort of feel great on him, right? But you're going to still get really good information, really fun history nerd conversations more frequently. Okay, let's dive into this first episode. So for my first episode with a guest on, I had to bring the other Emily. And I will let her kind of introduce yourself, but for those of you who know me at all, you immediately know who the other Emily is. She and I started teaching together in Austin, and we both immediately figured out that we're like the same person. You will hear it when we talk. We just finish each other's sentences and giggle at all the same things and... It's amazing. Uh, she first came over to my house and realized we had the exact same shower curtain. When I met her now husband, I was like, he seems really similar to my husband. It's a little bit uncanny. Emily, you can find her on social media at Two Pool for School. She's on TikTok, she's on YouTube and Instagram, and her area of expertise is European history, which is not mine. So essentially, if you're listening and you're really into European history, whether that's AP or just for fun, if you really like art history, Emily Pool at Two Pool for School is someone you definitely want to check out. Emily and I also travel a lot together when we taught together and even when we split up to go to different schools, we've taken a lot of trips abroad with students. We took students to Cuba, to Peru, and then this past summer we started our own historical travel society that was basically for adults to get the chance to kind of have this little school trip study abroad experience with other like-minded history nerd adults. We just got back from our amazing trip exploring the Ottoman Empire all across Europe in July. We traveled with 30 other people from across the internet, followers of ours, some 
some of you that are maybe listening. And we went from Vienna to Bratislava, Budapest, and Istanbul. But before that trip started, Emily and I flew over to Europe a few days early and visited Helsinki and Riga, Latvia. So in today's episode, we are going to talk to you about everything we learned that was fascinating about the history of Latvia. And you might be wondering, why will I ever need to know the history of Latvia? And I will say, you probably won't. You've probably made it through your life so far, not quite knowing much about Latvia, and you've been okay. But we're historians and history nerds for the sake of it, and we love exploring new places, and we hope that you do too. We both fell in love with Riga in a way I, I haven't had that experience with a new city in a really long time. But the other much more compelling reason to listen to this episode is that other Emily, Emily Poole, has ancestry in Latvia. She discovered a lot about her grandmother, who was adopted from an orphanage in Latvia, basically during kind of the interwar years. And so we specifically traveled there so that we could do some research and explore her heritage. And we found so much more than we were expecting. Before we start the episode, I just want to say that I made a mistake throughout this episode that Emily decided not to point out to me until the very, very, very end. And you will hear, I kept, I kept her correction in at the very end. Throughout this entire episode, I talk about Riga and Latvia being on the Black Sea, which it's not. It's on the Baltic Sea. And I knew what I meant. And they both start with a B. And she let me say the Black Sea so many times. So instead of going back and like correcting it or redoing this entire episode, I'm just going to have my new producer, Ryan. Everyone say hello to Ryan. He's actually going through and editing these, these episodes for me. And it's making my life so much better. I'm going to have Ryan just like pick some sort of sound every time I say the Black Sea, just to remind you as the listener that I'm wrong. And I actually mean the Baltic Sea. Remember how I said that these episodes would come more frequently, but be less, less edited and maybe less pristine? Well, this is our first example of that. So with that, please enjoy my first episode of season four, all about Latvia or other Emily is a Latvian princess. This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's go back in time. Welcome back to Anti-Social Studies. My name is Emily Glankler and I have the other Emily here today. Hello, I am the other Emily. Two Emilys for the price of one, which is zero dollars because it's a podcast. So uh, <laughs> free. Um, so I'm really excited because today we're going to talk about something that might seem incredibly random, but very quickly you'll realize it's not, which <laughs> we're going to talk about Latvian history. Said maybe no podcaster ever. Um, why, Emily, are we going to talk about Latvian history? So we're going to talk about Latvian history because we just got back from a trip in, to Riga. And the reason that I convinced this Emily to go to Riga is because I did a little 23andMe test a couple years ago. And I found out that I am like 47% Latvian, which I knew kind of. Like my parents always told me growing up that we were the classic German and Irish mix. Sure. But then I did this ancestry test and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. I have so much Eastern European history. What's going on, parents? Um, and then my mom finally just kind of, I mean, yeah, my mom's mom, my maternal grandmother was born in Riga and was given to an orphanage where she was adopted when she was two weeks old and then grew up in Riga um, and then fled during World War II once the Soviets took over Latvia. So they fled via the way of Germany and then came to the States. And my mom never really talked about her mom at all because she actually, my maternal grandmother died of ovarian cancer when my mom mm -hmm. was in her twenties. And I think that's just like a sore subject. And I also don't think that she ever talked about 
fleeing their country because the Soviets were taking over. If that makes sense, that she would not want to share that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yes, from researching Latvian history, which I did, you know, in advance of us traveling there, I was like, oh, yeah, they've been through it. They've really been through it as a country. And it makes total sense for a lot of reasons. One, just that generation doesn't, you know, talk about things Mm -hmm. as much, but also to not want to like relive her childhood maybe makes sense. And it will make sense more when we talk about it. I guess before we dive in, I just kind of assumed that everyone knew who the other Emily was, but just in case you're listening and you're like, who's this? Why is Emily speaking twice? I don't know. Um, How would you introduce yourself, Emily Poole? My name is Emily Poole. I'm a high school history teacher, and I'm about to enter my 11th year of teaching. And I started my teaching career teaching at the same school as Emily Glankler. And we very quickly realized that we are pretty much the same person. We were given the same class to teach. And it was like the best introduction to teaching ever and kickstarted our friendship, which we are still friends after like a whole decade. And it's so sweet to me. Yeah, it's been a decade. Yeah, so we we did a lot of people now see us as like so people that talk via TikTok and they don't realize that we knew each other in real life first, which is really fun. So we um yeah, we taught together and then became just friends. Uh we um have also traveled a lot with students, mm-hmm. um, which is what prompted us to want to travel with adults, um, which is the trip we're sort of talking about. So so yeah, we did our own little independent travel before we met up with a big group of other history nerds to travel around the Ottoman Empire in Europe, which is very exciting. Yes. Next summer, we're going to Egypt, which is also very exciting. So if you're listening and you think it'd be fun to, like, chat with us on a sleeper train from Cairo to Aswan, then, you know, I don't know. Go check out my website. But anyway, so Latvian history is something I'd literally never learned about before. And I guess I just want to say, like, the Baltics in general, one of the things that was so interesting to me about traveling to Riga, well, first of all, I want to know your impression of Riga, because for me, it was one of the most impressive and surprising cities I've ever been to. I totally concur. I have been to a lot of cities in Western Europe and kind of like a lot of, you know, nice cities around the world, whatever. And I didn't really know what to expect about Riga. I think because it was behind the Iron Curtain in my brain, I was like, okay, it's going to be like still very developing. Like the whole country is going to suffer economically and all of those things that kind of were fed or taught to believe about these like Iron Curtain states. But it was beautiful. Like it was, it was so spectacularly beautiful it was so walkable. And Emily, like you said, too, when we were there, it's so clean. Like, it there's the no graffiti. city I've ever been to. Yeah. Yes. Oh. It felt to me like, and we kind of said this, and we can talk about this later, too, partly because of Latvian history, which is one of constantly being conquered by bigger powers, frankly, mm-hmm. is that the city Riga that was always ma- well-maintained, right? Because Riga was always a really important trading city, and every empire that took it over was like, well, we're going to use Riga as our center of the Baltic. So mm-hmm. it actually, even though it got conquered constantly, the city was actually really well-preserved and maintained because everyone was like, well, they'll... Riga will be our headquarters in the Baltics. And so that also means architecturally, like you could stand on one corner and be like, well, this street was built for, you know, the Dutch merchants. So it's, it feels like you're in Amsterdam. And then this street is built for the Swedish, whatever. And it feels like you're in Stockholm. And it almost felt like a Disney set of a European capital. Like it felt, Mm -hmm. but in the most beautiful way, like it felt just like you could wander around and learn and see kind of visually, like most of European architecture in this one little town. 
Emily, that is actually a really beautiful analogy. And it does kind of feel like you're walking around, yeah, like Epcot or like, you know, you go down a different street and you're like in a different kind of like little village, but yeah. then you're over here and it looks totally different, but and very natural. Not, but it's not fake too. Cause you're like, oh, yeah. and it actually was built by Dutch merchants in the 17th century. Right. And it's, and it's been preserved. So I was the same way. I was expecting very Soviet style architecture. I was expecting it to be maybe modern style, like really modern. I was expecting a lot more devastation since I'd learned about its history because during World War II and then the Cold War, there was a lot of destruction and it was the total opposite. So anyway, mm -hmm. the other impression I got before we get into the history is that the people of Riga are just sitting back and laughing at everybody yes. else. This is the impression I got because they, I think they had a really good sense of humor. They seem to know how probably US Americans view them or honestly just don't think about them at all. Mm-hmm. And they seem to love it that way. They're like this hidden gem that's mm -hmm. like they've already had a gay president. They've already had a female president. They're pretty moderate. They don't have to deal with extremism, even though they're right next to Russia. Like they're part of NATO and the EU. Their economy's growing. And they're perfectly fine with us Americans not even knowing where they're on the map. They're like, great, mm -hmm. we'll just keep chilling in this amazing city that you don't know about. Yes, like a true, true hidden gem. Yeah. So sorry, Riga, we're going to blow it up to the people that listen to this podcast, but it was amazing. So Latvian history, um, really, I mean, it's literally like Latvia net, did not exist until the 20th century, right? So it's interesting because we're kind of just talking about the history of the Baltics and we're going to go in really broad strokes because I'm going to be honest, I don't think any of you listening like need to know what was going on in the Baltics in the 17th century to get through your day. But I do find this really interesting just as a part of the world we never learn about. And there were some things that were surprising to me that like we think of as something that the Vikings did first or something that someone else did first. And actually it was the Baltics and they sort of mm -hmm. get forgotten. Mm -hmm. So, um, so really we're just talking about the Baltics in general, but I'll just sort of say Latvia. And the thing I thought was interesting is that our uh, tour guide, Kaspars, who we Loved. We loved Kaspars. Free city tours, Riga, um, talked about that the, ba the people of the Baltics were like the last pagans of Europe. They mm -hmm. were the last to convert to Christianity. Um, I have some of the details on that, but do you remember anything about that or how that happened? Yes, I remember that it was a German crusade up to the Baltics. I want to say it was like maybe the 1200s too, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and their whole goal was to go take over the Baltics and convert them to Christianity. But before that, I mean, yeah, in the 1200s, the people within the Baltics were still these heathen pagans. Yeah, it was literally called the Northern Crusade. So it was like, oh, wait, why are we focusing so much on, you know, what's today the Middle East or whatever, when we have, quote unquote, pagans right here in the Baltics. And so basically... The Baltics were just kind of sitting on the Black Sea. Um, at this point in the 1200s, we're still in medieval Europe. And so we're talking about Russia doesn't really exist yet. Russia's starting to form, right? The Mongols come in and conquer Kiev, and then slowly they're going to form and create their czars. Uh, the empires of like Sweden and Poland, like they're all going to come later. But really, Northeastern Europe is still this very fragmented, whatever you picture like Monty Python medieval Europe to be. Mm -hmm. is sort of that. Um, and so it's really interesting because this is the thing that our tour guide said is he was like, everyone thinks the Vikings were like the last quote pagans of Europe. And no, 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 they, they had already converted and settled and it wasn't until really they came to the Baltics. So yeah, mm -hmm. there are these German crusaders. Um, what I thought was interesting is that one of the things that prompted this Northern crusade was the loss of uh, the Holy land in the earlier crusades. So the fact that you had this wave of these first few crusades from like the 10 hundreds to the 11 hundreds that spoiler alert failed, 
the Christians didn't retake the Holy Land, they then start looking around and go, well, where's maybe some easier land to take <laughs> to get some new souls in, right? And so they look and see the Baltics. And to be fair, I, and I think, I think our tour guide would agree, Latvia has been fairly easy to conquer mm-hmm. for most of its history, right? Yes. So, um, so yeah, I thought that was super interesting and that it became... Um, it was governed by essentially a crusader state, like literally like we see in, you know, Constantinople or other places, literally Mm -hmm. it was like formed as a state by crusaders to say our whole purpose here is to bring Christianity here and then also to bring trade. And that's one of the things that crusaders often sometimes accidentally brought along with them, but they brought these new trading ties. So Mm -hmm. when we talk about world history, the crusades themselves aren't that important as far as like changing of territories, Right. And you can talk about this more, but they're incredibly important for the establishment of new trade ties with Europe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Whenever we talk about the Crusades in my history class, we talk about how, right, like their quote, history's most successful failures, because Mm -hmm. obviously, like these Western European Christians were not successful in the fact that they were not able to hold on to the Holy Land for a long period of time. But it helped contribute and bring Europe out of its dark ages and like led to this renaissance. So like, yeah, there are obviously like a holy war doesn't make sense. And that is like very sad and lots of death happened and destruction happened, but it had these positive benefits specifically for the Europeans because they're now hooked up to these trade routes that they had been um, not allowed or not, did not have access to for, you know, centuries. So the same thing is happening here in Latvia. It's going to bring, or the Baltic States, it's going to bring that area into more connection with the West, rest of Western Europe, which is going to be overall positive for them, especially when you think about Latvia's geography and Riga's geography, because it is right on a huge river that then opens out into the Baltic Seas. Yeah, this is the thing, too, that's so interesting to me is that when we talk about, for example, all these trade routes in the late Middle Ages, the Silk Road, we have the Indian Ocean trade, the Saharan trade, Europe just sort of gets lost in that. It's like, I feel like most of my maps of the Silk Road end maybe in Constantinople, Mm -hmm. maybe end in Venice, but they were like, it should have ended also in Riga. Like there should have Mm -hmm. been a branch that went up along these rivers into Riga, that Riga right on the Black Sea Mm -hmm. and right on this river was an incredibly important outpost like to get a lot of these goods and ideas from Asia into Europe. Mm -hmm. And to the the extent that they also joined the Hanseatic League, which is something we teach about or we taught about in our world and European history classes, it's kind of the beginning of this new unification of different cities into kind of a trading alliance. Mm -hmm. It's one of the pieces of evidence you could talk about that like Europe is coming out of their quote unquote dark ages, right? And starting to reform and like recreate, like maybe we should go beyond our village and maybe we should trade more, that sort Mm -hmm. of thing. But like German traders, German merchants, German crusader states brings me to St. Maurice, who is a saint that we learned about and had never heard of before. And so there's this really famous building. It's actually, I'll say this for Kasper's sake, it's a recreation. It's not been (laughs) renovated. It's been totally recreated. He went on a whole rant about it that I loved. Um, but it's a perfect recreation of this, um, and it's called the the Blackheads, right? The House of the Blackheads. House of the Blackheads. Which is a bad name, right? Mm-hmm. For two but, reasons. Mm-hmm. One, because I think of, like, pimple blackheads. Mm, that is you not know? in any way what came to my mind the first time oh. that I heard that, Emily. <laughs> I think of, like, blackheads in your pores, and, like, mm. that's all I could think of. But it's also bad because it actually is talking about black heads, like the heads of black people, but not in the way we assume. Right. So, um, who do you, what do you remember about St. Maurice? Cause his, his pick, basically his likeness is on the front of this building. So you're walking mm-hmm. through Riga, very white, right. And all of a sudden you see on the front of this incredibly old looking building, a black man 
Um, mm-hmm. Just kind of up there in this place of prominence. And I think a lot of us, myself included, if I didn't have any context, would assume that that was a bad thing. Would assume that this is some reference to colonialism, white supremacy, imperialism, mm-hmm. whatever. So what do we know about St. Maurice? I'll give you the basics about St. Maurice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which ones do you remember? If you're listening and you're wondering why we're laughing, it's just because we cut out a really funny tangent that Emily <laughs> went on that was 80% inaccurate. <laughs> Wow, throw me under the bus there, Emily. (laughs) So St. Maurice was an Egyptian. He was a military leader. He was head of the Theban Legion in Rome in like the 200s. And yeah, I think it was that he was asked by the Romans to kill a group of Christians who were like Mm. rebelling against. So as a soldier for Rome, but as a Christian he refused to. And then he eventually, he was killed and became a martyr. So Mm -hmm. he is this saint and he's black he's always depicted as a black man and i say that just because i know sometimes with egyptian history it's confusing right because cleopatra you know was actually macedonian that sort of thing he's depicted as always as a black man from egypt who becomes this patron saint to like merchants and kind of crusaders defenders of the faith all across europe and which is how his likeness ends up in riga mm-hmm. so anyway yeah sorry anything else no. That was that was great, and you covered all of my wrong my wrong words. I do remember though that wasn't he adopted? Wasn't he adopted by the Habsburgs? He was adopted by some very famous family as their like patron saint, and that's why he also I became... he literally adopted. And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm keeping all this in. By the way, but I thought you meant literally adopted. I was like, God, Emily, what? you are not paying attention on this tour. Okay. You mean the Habsburg family was like, we want him to be part of our like symbol and like one of our saints that we honor. Yes. Because they came a thousand years after he was alive. So he was not their adopted child. Got it. Okay. So again, I just think he's a really good example of the importance that Riga has played in European history that like this Roman Egyptian black martyr ended up on the front of a building in Riga because of German crusading slash merchants who wanted to like bring Christianity to Latvia. Like it's just this wild bringing together of a lot of different places that you wouldn't connect. And that's something that Emily, you and I talked about a lot when we were on that walking tour is that it just seems like in this one picture, in this one building on this one street, you could talk about so much of European history because it's Latvia and Riga has been impacted by so many different outside forces over the course of its history. Yes. I even put in my notes, I'm pulling up my notes up right now, but I said, um, you know, for example, in 1201, Christianity arrives in Latvia and there was competition between Germans who were a lot, a lot of the German kind of crusading knights who came in with Dutch traders. Right. So just know that the Dutch are like constantly crushing it on trade. Mm-hmm. And um, and one thing that was really interesting is that instead of having a trade war, instead of the Germans maybe trying to defend Riga, they actually did the opposite and encouraged a lot of intermarriage between the two they're like actually let's just bring the dutch in we'll kind of handle the christianity politics part of it and the dutch can handle the trade so literally like in riga there's a street called the little netherlands Mm -hmm. that's from like the 12 and 1300s right i mean it's literally like this ethnic enclave where they built things that again look like you're in amsterdam for those merchant communities to come and like feel at home which again we just don't really i don't associate with the late middle ages in europe right Mm -hmm. And then I put, it's a melting pot. There was a Calvinist church that was built in the Dutch Baroque style. There was an Anglican church built in the Gothic style. And the thing is, none of these 
are they're not like 20th century these are like from the time when the gothic style is being built or from the time when the baroque style is being built one of those buildings was built in riga so yeah if you're interested in architecture and european history it's like a really high 10 out of 10 highly recommend oh yeah okay emily we were having coffee one day in riga and you started a conversation by saying i've been thinking a lot lately about the <laughs> polish lithuanian commonwealth i have been Okay. It's on my well, mind still today. So what do you know about it? Because they did rule over Latvia for a little while. Well, you're going to put me on the spot. So We've the been Poland... thinking about it a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, the Poland-Lithuania Commonwealth was this gigantic, essentially like empire that ruled over a majority of Eastern Europe and had millions of people within its like huge, massive borders. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I had been thinking about with the Poland-Lithuania Commonwealth <laughs> is that they actually were the first to pass an edict of religious toleration, like codified into law. Mm-hmm. And I want to say it was 1573. And I'm pulling that out of the back of my brain, but I feel like that's accurate because it was a very long time ago. And it was like in this time of religious wars that were plaguing a lot of Western Europe. And I just think that that is like a huge... I mean, I teach AP European history and Poland is like a footnote in AP European history. We talk about it as this passive agent and we talk about, we talk about Poland when it gets partitioned by Russia, Prussia and Austria. We don't actually talk about what it was like as a whole nation. So I just think the fact, yeah, there's more digging that I want to do there, but Mm -hmm. the things that I've learned about Poland, I really like. Two things. One, 1573 was exactly right. Oh, wow. Self five. It was called the Warsaw Confederation. It guaranteed to uphold peace between diverse confessions, making the newly formed Polish-Lithuania Commonwealth one of the most tolerant countries on the continent, mm-hmm. um, which is just kind of incredible. And yeah, I mean, for me, I'd literally just never heard of it before. Like literally the Polish-Lithuania Commonwealth, <laughs> if I saw it, it was like, I was doing some research about some czar in Russia and it gets mentioned as an enemy. And I, I, I was constantly like, I guess I think I need to Google that later. <laughs> but the fact that it's was so massive and so important for so long, right? I mean, it's right up there alongside the growing Russian empire, the Holy Roman empire, the empire of Sweden is another one that I have not learned very much about. So I just want to mention, we're not, I don't know any more details about <laughs> their ruling over Latvia. Same with Swedish rule. But it's just important to note that, again, Latvia is, like, changing so many hands. It's going from, quote-unquote, pagan, kind of Baltic people, to German crusaders, to Dutch merchants, to the Polish-Lithuania Commonwealth, to the Swedish Empire. And it's, like, throughout all of those, it's surviving and actually growing and thriving as a really, really important city that's a link between kind of the Black Sea, Scandinavia, Russia, and Europe, which is Mm -hmm. cool. Um, one other thing that I put that we both looked at each other on the trip, my favorite thing to be on a tour with you is <laughs> when someone will say something and I know that we're both going to catch each other's eyes and be like, oh my gosh. So the thing that was interesting to me was that he said, our, our guide said in 1522, Riga became the first city to officially adopt Protestantism. Mm-hmm. which we both looked at each other because we were doing the math. And that's just five years after Martin Luther's like 95 theses. That's mm-hmm. incredibly fast. Mm-hmm. So obviously people had adopted Protestantism, but I guess the distinction is like, this was the first city to say, we officially are going to be a Protestant city. Which is fascinating yeah. to me. Yeah. Okay. That was, that was a huge fact to me. The other fact that I really love that I have been thinking a lot about since then, and you brought up Lithuania earlier. So that's my connection is that Latvian and Lithuanian as languages are Baltic languages. They're not Slavic. They're not German. They are their own unique thing. Mm -hmm. Which again, in my brain, I'm like, if they could all, if 
all the Baltic states could speak the same language. That would be very great for me as a traveler. <laughs> but the <laughs> fact that Latvian and Lithuanian weren't influenced by outside forces originally, right? What do yeah. you think about like Estonian? They were definitely influenced by like the Nordic states and a lot of those Southern kind of places in Eastern Europe were influenced by German, but no, they're their own yeah. thing. But yeah, the Baltic language. So I put a note in here that Kaspar's, our tour guide said, that one of the most annoying questions that someone from Latvia gets is like, so you speak Russian or how close is your language to Russian? Because we just assume because it's Russia that like every state that borders on Russia is going to be heavily influenced by Russian language, Russian culture, because, you know, they're always creeping. But here they've preserved their language so much so that there's effectively no Russian in there except for curse words. This is my favorite fact mm -hmm. that he was like, yeah, we're our own. We're a Baltic language. There's no connection to any other Slavic languages at all. Germanic, Swedish. He says Latvian, the Latvian language just doesn't have a lot of swear words. And they're the ones they do have are not very effective. So I wrote these down. He says you could call someone a pimpausas, which sounds cute and also translates to penis with ears, <laughs> which he was like, is just sort of silly and just whatever. Or if you're really, really mad like you would say, like, I have a bee in my hair, which <laughs> is also just adorable. And so instead, the only Russian they've adopted is fairly recently. And they've adopted basically all their curse words are Russian curse words, which I and think is hilarious. What was the great joke that he said about that, Emily? Oh, yeah. He said, so the Soviet Union gave us the language skills so that we could say everything we think about the Soviet Union. Yes. <laughs> so, so it's like the only words that a Russian will understand when a Latvian is speaking are the curse words when they're probably cursing about Russia, which mm -hmm. is hilarious. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, they're going through this period, right? They're controlled then by Polish-Lithuania Commonwealth, by Sweden. And then there's this great Northern War, which is a massive war between Russia and Sweden, um, in which up to 40% of modern-day Latvia, the people die of famine and plague. It's this really terrible war. So this is, this is the sad continuity of Latvian history, is that they are always, actually really similar to Poland, too, mm -hmm. they're always getting caught between Russia and what other, whatever other big empires on the other side. And often there's a ton of death and destruction because of that, which is mm -hmm. partly why I was so shocked at how well-preserved and beautiful Riga was because I just assumed the city would have had the same fate. So do you teach about the great Northern war in European history? Uh, is it in the CED? <laughs> yes. Do, do I you say... technically do your job and yes. cover it? Yes. Um, what I know about the great Northern war is that Russia fought against Sweden and Russia won. And that is mm -hmm. what thrust Russia onto the world stage and like yeah. kind of started its imperial reign because it got a lot of land that Sweden had controlled, like in the Baltics. And that was Peter the Great, right? Yes. I'm pretty sure. This is, yeah, this is, this would be just like one of the pieces of example, one of the illustrative examples, if you will, of Peter the Great, just like rapidly expanding the Russian empire. Mm -hmm. So that then if you watch the great, maybe when Catherine the Great kind of comes in two generations later, um, there's actually a lot of fun interactions between her and the former king of Sweden, I think, who like they were at war, but now they're kind of friendly. And so that's really what that's alluding to, right? So by basically 1795, all of modern day Latvia is part of the Russian empire. And so this is when we get into really its modern history, where essentially it's just going to get kicked back and forth between Russia and Germany mm -hmm. until like 30 years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. So what I have in my notes is that I have by 1800, they're under Russian control. They still have a lot of German, Swedish, Polish landowners. So one of the things that makes Latvia very confusing is that 
they have allowed in or been forced in a lot of different groups that now have been there for a really long time, right? If you think about the Germans who've been there since the 1200s or the Dutch. Um, and so even though the Russians come in, there's still a lot of diversity, at least like Northern European diversity. And so they're basically just a like fringe part of the Russian Empire. I think they're actually Riga is one of the most important trading cities of the Russian Empire throughout the 1800s. Um, but really throughout the 1800s, they're just kind of there as part of that bigger empire. I don't really have a lot of like specific things to talk about, except that throughout the 19th century, they do have a kind of nationalist awakening, which I thought we could talk about for a second, because this is a trend you will see throughout the 1800s mm -hmm. is you will see a lot of places that were on the fringes or were part of bigger empires, whether that's in the Balkan states, which is different from the Baltics, BT devs, mm -hmm. the Balkans, <laughs> right? Like Serbia, those places were kind of on the fringes of the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire um, or Greece on the fringes of the Ottoman Empire, whatever. The Philippines and Puerto Rico on the edges of the Spanish Empire, you're going to see nationalist movements rise. Why? Why is that, Emily? <sighs> well, because of Napoleon. <laughs> um, that's that's what every, I would say. Yeah, every answer could be because of Napoleon. He um, kind of usurps power after the French Revolution and then does what all you know good Caesars wanted to do, which is conquer most of Europe. And in his conquering of Europe. Um, a lot of people realize, oh, you know, I don't want to be part of this burgeoning French empire. Instead of that, I want to, like, develop my own national identity. So we see that for sure play out in German, in the German states. We definitely see that play out in Spain. There's a lot of fighting between the Spanish and the French um, in the early 1800s. And then that kind of nationalism continues because in the mid-1800s, we have the unification of Italy, unification of Germany. So we've really mm -hmm. started to see these giant national identities start to emerge across Europe, really starting maybe in Western Europe and then spreading East. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then that trend, as often happens, right, it maybe starts in the quote-unquote mother countries of these massive empires, right? Mm -hmm. But then it's going to spread to the colonized people who are going to be mm -hmm. like, this seems like it applies more to us than y'all. Mm -hmm. Like maybe it's even more important that we as Puerto Ricans or we as uh, Greeks or whatever, like that we actually have our own national movement and national identity separate from your larger empire. And mm -hmm. so again, same thing is happening in the Baltics. There's a movement called the Young Latvian Movement, um, which a lot of its leaders are looking a little bit further south to the Balkans, to some of those Slavic states, remember, who are just emerging from the Ottoman Empire, who's kind of weakening its hold. But the Austro-Hungarian Empire is looming, being like, ooh, that looks nice. We'd love to take up <laughs> essentially like Serbia, Bosnia, those places. Spoiler alert, right? That's where World War One is going to start because Serbia says, no, we don't want to be conquered. They're going to kill a guy and then the whole mm -hmm. world goes to war, right? And so Latvia is from the north. They're a little more protected because they're not like well, not protected. They're just part of the Russian Empire, right? And no one is really trying to conquer Riga at this moment. So they're kind of watching what's going on in the Balkans and going, yeah, we should do that too. And really, by the end of the 1800s, they have another movement that's actually fairly leftist. It's going to be a fairly left-leaning kind of socialist, nationalist movement, but not like Marxism, not Lenin, not Marxism. And in fact, what really sparks the Latvian independence movement is the 1905 Russian Revolution, right? So I... Do you know a lot about the 1905 Russian Revolution? Yes. Oh, great. Tell me more. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. I haven't taught it in a couple of years, so I got to think for a minute. But yes, this was the one they... Okay. So, oh my gosh, Emily. <laughs> um, in the late 1800s, Alexander II was mm -hmm. Tsar of Russia, and he tried to make a lot of modern reforms because he realized that Russia needed to reform in order to keep up with the rest of its Western European contemporaries. 
1905, that was the first revolt or yeah, revolt led by, I want to say it was actually started by women and yes. then the rest of the people got involved because it was like bad industrial, like factory working conditions and just like mm-hmm. bad economic problems. So they marched onto the castle um, and this is where the guards fired into the crowd and yeah. killed a lot of people. And that's also called Bloody Sunday. Mm-hmm. I want to say it's like September 1905, maybe. Um, and then that is kind of was squashed, but that foments over the course of the next you know decade and kind of leads to that February and October revolution in 1917. That was beautiful. That was great. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's uh, more than what I knew about it. I just essentially knew that it was sort of like, it was like um, a, a foreshadowing for the 1917 revolution, mm-hmm. basically that throughout Russian history in the 1800s, there had been these other nationalist movements. There'd been a revolt called the Decemberist revolt, which was like military officers, basically a lot of people just kind of pushing because Russia was constantly a century or two behind Western mm-hmm. Europe. So they just weren't opening up as quickly. They weren't allowing for kind of some basic rights, some enlightened ideas as quickly as other parts of Europe. And so, yeah, 1905, as I understand it, I thought it was like women from the markets who Mm -hmm. marched on the Winter Palace because they Mm -hmm. were like, the czar must not know. He just must not know how terrible our lives are and how bad Mm -hmm. it is right now to be a peasant or a worker in Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there was still this like cult of personality around the czar. He's like the father of our empire, whatever. And yeah, it turns out he wasn't at the Winter Palace, just his guards were, but someone made the terrible decision to fire into the crowd and killed a ton of women and children. And so this is just seen as like, this is a breaking point with the czar that like, actually maybe he doesn't understand us at all. Maybe he doesn't care about us at all. And of course, then they get dragged into World War I and that's going to be the last straw where the czar is still sending out millions of Russians to fight and die on the on the Eastern Front. Like, and it's just going to be horrific. Right. Yeah. So when that sparks, it also kind of sparks this nationalist movement in Latvia too to say, like, see, we should not be part of this empire. Right. Like the czar doesn't even care about the people in Moscow or in were they in St. Petersburg, maybe or Moscow. That feels right. In one of those cities, in a Russian city. And so we should start pushing for our own independence as well. So World War I just tears apart the Russian Empire, right? I mean, Russia was on the Allied side, but they basically have to leave the war early. They leave the war signing their own treaty with Germany, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. Great job. Great pronunciation. Thank you. And so within that, Latvia is sort of like this no man's land power vacuum. Keep in mind, Latvia has never been a country before. They've they've never been their own thing. So -hmm. they're like looking around as the Russians are retreating and as the Germans are kind of still losing to the allies. And they're like, well, while no one's here, maybe we should make a country for ourselves. (laughs) And so they form right in November 18th, which is my birthday, 1918 my lucky number 18, they formed the People's (laughs) Council of Latvia proclaiming a new country. And they're like, I think we're just going to be our own thing now, which I find really fascinating that we, we forget how young so much of the map is today. Oh yeah. You look at the map, you look at Africa, you look at parts of South and Southeast Asia and parts of Eastern Europe. And like some of these countries are truly babies, like have Mm -hmm. not, have not existed longer than a hundred years. Mm-hmm. So they have, there's some fights. They have to fight the Germans and fight the Russians, but eventually everyone's kind of like, we'll just let them be Latvia for now, right? Enter foreshadowing music. And so they have this period of independence in the 1920s and 30s where they're governed mostly by democratic coalitions um, and their industrial base starts to really improve. Their economy starts doing really well. I have a statistic that says in 1897, 61% of the rural population was landless. And by 1936, it was 18%. 
Oh, wow. So like they're really they're really doing well, kind of caring for their people. And I mentioned that because this is the era when your grandmother was born. Yes. Emily, do you actually have the exact date of Rosma? Do you um, have somewhere? So she was born. It says in 1928, we have a document saying she was two years old. So we're assuming she was born in 1926. Um, and we have that she was adopted from an orphanage by Maria and Alphonse, another a Latvian couple, right? Mm-hmm. And that we think that Alphonse, your great-grandfather, was born in the 1890s. So he would have been born in Riga during, like, the tail end of the Russian Empire, like, this nationalist movement growing. Um, and her mother, your great-grandmother, was born in Russia in 1904. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she's right born the right before this revolution starts. And so she somehow, and I think we can assume we understand why, leaves Oriol, Russia, um, mm-hmm. and ends up in Riga, probably because it's not a great place to be living in probably semi-rural Russia from mm-hmm. 1904 to 1917. So, so yeah, so your grandmother's born in this, like, kind of golden era of, like, 14 years of democracy until the mid-30s. And mm-hmm. in the mid-30s, basically everyone and their mom is establishing, like, a totalitarian authoritarian regime especially um, in eastern europe especially in eastern europe do you okay i'll, I'll pull up my notes because i do but do you remember anything about because they did make a our, our tour guy did make an interesting distinction where he was like listen we had an authoritarian dictator but he wasn't like he wasn't the same as like the stalins and the hitlers that were coming up in the 1930s as well do you remember this Yes. And I remember the one story that he told us when we were in that square Mm -hmm. is that there used to be, I think, a lot of housing or some kind of little market. But then he tore down this market area so that he could build um, a pallet or like a large building for himself with a lovely pat. What is the word? Balcony. Balcony. I was like, patio is not right. (laughs) With a balcony um, and then just paved the street flat so that people could listen to him as he's giving these giant proclamations. You know what's even better about that story is that the building already existed with the balcony, but it was in the middle of like a dense area where people were living. And he just thought that balcony looks great and looks like (laughs) a great place to give speeches from. And so he's like, let's raise the whole block around it to make space so people could stand. So like he literally just saw the balcony and was like, I need to give some speeches from that. And my, (laughs) my fans will need a place to stand. So there wasn't the level of violence in this authoritarian regime, but it was extreme political control, right? I mean, this Mm -hmm. is going to be like, you're not allowed to dissent, but this is, this is much more like a megalomaniac kind of cult of personality. um, But ruling over this very small state, Mm -hmm. it's still bad, but we didn't have the level of like violence against its own people as we Mm -hmm. saw in rising in Nazi Germany, in Stalin's Russia, that sort of thing. And so there's this period where then through the late 1930s, they're establishing, they have this totalitarian regime, this autocrat, his name is Carlos Ulmanis, I believe. But then everything just sort of explodes and falls apart in 1939 with the beginning of World War II. Mm -hmm. And so this is really the the part of Latvian history that has a direct impact on your life and why you're Mm -hmm. like here talking to me today, because... Mm -hmm. Um, pretty quickly when Russia gets involved in World War II, right? So, well, you can explain this too if you want, but Russia and Germany had kind of signed a like frenemy peace agreement because they hated each other. Stalin mm-hmm. and Hitler hated each other, but they signed a thing saying like, we won't fight against each other, right? If we invade Poland, like if Germany, right? Like they, they agree to split Poland, essentially, mm-hmm. they're not going to fight each other. Over Poland. And then, right. And then it's And they both some, get land. Then at some point, um, 
Hitler goes back on that as like, actually, never mind. I'm just going to invade Russia anyway. Can I go on like a really small tangent? Please. It might be the same okay. tangent I'm thinking of. Go ahead. Oh, so the reason that he wanted to go invade Russia is because they needed resources to fuel Blitzkrieg, and that is from the Caucasus Mountains. So he needed oil to do that. Um, and my small tangent, though, is, Emily, have you read about the fact that Nazi soldiers were on meth, like, pretty much the entirety of World War II? Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, like, then I don't need to teach you about it. <laughs> but no, I mean, yes, they were like, and of course, you know, they, at the time they were like, oh my gosh, what is this medicine that turns our men into like super soldiers? And yes. then it's, it was meth. Yes. Was they were given meth. And that yeah. is part of the reason that they were so successful with all their blitzkrieg tactics and just taking over land so quickly. Yeah. Which by the way, like 1950s housewives, like they're all drugged on uppers too. I mean, they're mm -hmm. all like, wow, how is she so content to vacuum all day? And it's like, oh, it's because they prescribed her a ton of sometimes like similar types of drugs. Anyway, okay. The other thing I thought the tangent you were going to go on is we were also in Helsinki in Finland. Mm. And that was where they talked about that um, the, wasn't it when World War II started, the Russians attempted to take over oh. Helsinki, remember? Yes. And the Finnish people like fought back way more than anyone expected them to. It was sort mm -hmm. of a, I equated in my head to like the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Like no one expected Ukraine to last more than a few weeks. Mm -hmm. Same with the Finnish people at the beginning of World War II. And that actually was one of the things Hitler watched that and went, actually, I think the Russians are weaker, weaker than, than I think, think they are. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting because it connected our travels together. We went from Helsinki to Riga. It was like this Finnish resistance during World War II, but they lasted way longer to where Hitler was like, actually, I kind of think if I invaded Russia, maybe I could do it. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, Latvia, along with a ton of Eastern, North and Eastern Europe, gets caught in the middle of this battle between the Soviets and the Germans. And it's this kind of constant back and forth. And so they're really only um, incorporated as part of the Soviet Union for like the first year of World War II. Really from 1941 until 1944, they're occupied by the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And... We, we talked about this a little bit, but do you want to remind us of why the Nazis didn't destroy Riga? Because yeah. it was incredibly well-preserved. Yeah, so one of my most favorite facts from the trip was that only 2% of Riga was destroyed in World War II. 2%. When you think about a lot of, especially like Western European capital cities, mm -hmm. like the fact that it was only 2% and they were kind of like accidental bombings is wild. Yeah. And that's because when the Nazis wanted to make their kind of greater empire, they thought that Riga would be their capital in the East. Like they had their capital in Berlin and then they wanted to have their capital in Riga. So they preserved it really well because they thought that that was going to be a place where they could rule from. Yeah. They said like, well, this is clearly, it's like a very central city. If you look at the ba the Baltic states, Riga's right in the middle. It's right on the Black Sea. It's right on this river. And so actually they recognized its value and its importance and thought, okay, we want to preserve this because this is where our kind of headquarters for this new region of our Third Reich will be. Mm -hmm. um, and so they did attempt, like we got to see there's a synagogue in Riga that's still standing, that's survived World War II. They talked about that, unfortunately, the buildings that were destroyed were mostly Jewish buildings and synagogues, but that this one specifically wasn't destroyed during the war just because it was right in the heart of the city center and they would have burned it down. But because they're right on the Black Sea and it's like very windy and a lot of the buildings are all built very close to each other, the Nazis basically just said it's too risky because we don't actually want to burn down these other buildings where we're going to live and we're going to have mm -hmm. our administration. So they said, we'll tear it down brick, brick by brick after the war, after we win, which, of course, mm -hmm. they didn't. And so now there's this synagogue that's still standing just because of that, like, logistical reason. They just mm -hmm. said, well, it's going to be too dangerous to try to burn it down and we don't want to ruin these other nice buildings. So, again, this is like 
horrible and sad and we're not trying to like minimize the destruction and the death of i mean the latvian people were Mm -hmm. just heavily brutalized by the nazis obviously the latvian jewish population but when you look at the actual city i think one of the things that was the most surprising to both of us is yeah how much of it has survived i was just expecting everything to be a recreation or everything to be a modern because i'm like man you don't survive like russian empire nazi empire soviet empire with again 98 percent of your city intact Mm-hmm. So, so when the Nazis take over Latvia, I mean, we're kind of almost done with this narrative. This is when your grandmother is in her early teens. Well, she was born in 1926. So she'd be, let's do some math. Yeah, she'd be in her teens. She'd be in her late teens, right? Yeah. And Latvia would have been an incredibly confusing place to be because obviously you have some, you have some people who I'm sure are just Nazi sympathizers. You have some people who don't mind the Nazis because they kicked out the Soviets, right? Mm -hmm. You have some people who wanted the Soviets, so they want to fight with resistance underground with the Soviets against the Nazis. And then you have some people who just want independence, who just want Mm -hmm. everyone out of Latvia. Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly chaotic. And I only say that because this can be tricky when you're researching your own heritage, right? Mm -hmm. And you research your heritage and you're like, oh, okay, my grandmother was in this Nazi-occupied country Mm -hmm. what does that mean what did they do what did they not do and i think it's just really important to mention that like there were not good choices if you were like a regular person living in this part of the world at this time right um and so there were a lot of people for example one of the reasons it seems like your grandmother was able to get out before the wall the iron curtain fell Mm -hmm. was they were able to like basically escape through germany right And so what happens is I found um, some documents that were super interesting. So, for example, we found that there was one part of Latvia that was that held out on the Black Sea when the Soviets came and retook. And they were able to get like hundreds of thousands of Latvians basically out as the Soviets came in. And the Soviet reinvasion of a lot of these places was horrific. Right. Their treatment of the the civilians and the soldiers and stuff was really brutal. And so we believe that your grandmother and her parents were able to get out into Germany where they ended up when World War II ended. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, they're in sort of a relocation camp administered by the British in mm-hmm. Germany until 1949, which is when we have like the ship manifest of the, their, her, your grandmother's family emigrating from Germany in 1949 and ending up in the United States. Yeah. If I... I think the couple of things that I remember my mom telling me about, maybe even going back a little bit, about my grandma, which again, was not a lot. I really don't know a ton about her and have never met her. But I think, so my grandma spoke Russian, Latvian, and German. And I think that that was very advantageous for them, especially during that time, because Mm -hmm. they could kind of pass off as being who they needed to be in the moment for their safety. And I remember my mom telling me, and I, like, yeah, my mom said that her mom told her that like Nazi control of Latvia was terrible because it's under totalitarian rule and they're Nazis. But like my grand, my grandparents weren't the target audience of the Mm -hmm. Nazis. So like, it was really bad, but they could like still survive there. And I know that sounds awful, but when the Soviets were coming back through, that's when they knew they had to flee because the Soviets were so out of control, brutal compared to their experience under Nazi rule. And that's when they fled out through that German controlled area. Yeah. And it's really interesting, right? That like, you know, we're not, we're not passing judgment or not passing judgment or whatever. I'm very much of the belief that like, I have no idea how I would have acted during if I was in that same situation. But yeah, it's like, if you were a white Christian 
family mm-hmm. under Nazi occupation, like you were probably safe. Life wasn't good mm-hmm. for you. But you were probably safe. And if the alternative was a Soviet reinvasion, where honestly it was like a crapshoot, like who knew who they were mm-hmm. going to kind of try to attack that day. Again, overall, they're both horrific and terrible, but it makes sense for your family situation that they would try to flee the Soviet reinvasion of the country mm-hmm. and get out more towards the West, which they did, right? So they ended up in the war. They ended up kind of in the Western part of Germany, really, thankfully. It reminds me of the end of, spoiler alert, that movie Jojo Rabbit, where mm-hmm. like they walk outside and they're like, which side of Berlin are we on? And they see the American flag and they're like, oh, thank God. I mean, it's so lucky that your family not only was able to get out before the Soviets occupied Riga, which the the occupation of Riga, we could do a whole other episode on, was incredibly Mm -hmm. brutal. There was forced collectivization. We went to Mm -hmm. a whole museum that was really well done about the occupation of Riga. But your family was able to get out and end up on the western side of Germany so that then they, by 1950, could be in the United States and start your family. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So I'm curious, learning all of that, and we'll pause there. We could do a whole other episode if we want to, if people are interested on the more recent kind of 20th century, like post-World War II history of Latvia. But I'm curious, like your takeaways, what was your experience like getting to visit Riga, learning about some of this stuff and learning about more about like what history your grandmother would have observed? I think it was, it was a lot more moving and meaningful than I thought it would be. I mean, obviously that's what motivated us to take a trip to Riga just the fact that I have a connection there, but then to learn more about Latvian history from Kaspars who loves it so much and <laughs> who himself just like, yeah, thinks Latvia is amazing. And I, I loved that. And I think, I don't, I don't know how to express what it's like to do a deep dive into your heritage when you know, like, you know, only bits and pieces because a lot of those records have been destroyed or like people didn't want to talk about it, but just mm-hmm. to be in a place and think that like my grandma, who again was like an orphan, which is like so shocking for me. Like she was just like left at an orphanage. So maybe it wasn't an orphan, but like was given up for adoption. It's just, it's, yeah, it's surreal for me to think back on that and just think about all of the moves that they had to make for me to get to where I am today Mm -hmm. and how, yeah, it was just really moving and meaningful. And I cried a lot. Yeah. There's so many ways that story could have ended differently. And I would argue a lot worse. Right. And when we were in that museum of like the museum talking about world war two and then the occupation well, I guess not the Soviet occupation, but during World War II, World War One and World War Two, we were looking at images of crowds, and I kind of remember mentioning, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Hey, your grandma could be in one of those pictures." Like, mm-hmm. you'd have no idea. But it, it was, it was really interesting for me to kind of have an excuse to go somewhere that I would have never visited otherwise, and just get to do some research into a place I've never learned about. And now, as I understand it, you're researching trying to get your dual citizenship. Yes, because. <laughs> I am a Latvian princess, long story short. <laughs> no, we learned that. I'm like, I don't even remember why I looked this up. But if you have, like, she's, right, my blood grandma. Um, she And I looked it up. If you were born between, like, 1918 and 1930 in Latvia and you fled between 1939 and 1945 from Latvia, like you can exactly. just apply for citizenship. Exactly what your grandma did. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I do, I did entertain the thought for a while that you could be a descendant of Anastasia, that like, what if, what if your grandmother who was left in an orphanage in 1928 was actually Anastasia, but like that doesn't, the, the dates don't add up. So anyway, but I'm just saying like, I don't know if we, if we smudge a few dates, yeah, you maybe have a claim. I'm just saying, so you're going to become a Latvian citizen, mm-hmm. uh, which gives you EU citizenship, which is, oh my gosh. 
What a fun thing to have in the back pocket. What a great thing to have in the back pocket (laughs) these days. And so then uh, when you inevitably move there, I'll just come visit you a lot. It'll be great. That sounds wonderful. Well, thank you for joining me. I, I want to really emphasize to anyone listening that I did not prepare Emily at all for this episode. Nope, not we, had had, we had had a meeting that we needed to have about our trip to Egypt that we're taking with people next July. And I just was like, hey, do you want to stay, stick around and talk to me about Latvia for an hour? <laughs> and she said, sure. And this is why we are friends. <laughs> <laughs> And you knew a lot of stuff. And so I just want to reiterate that this was just a casual conversation between two nerds about the history of Latvia. And it was lovely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining. Okay, bye. Can I say one last thing? Oh, yeah. Um, And you can edit this out. Latvia is not on the Black Sea. It's on the Baltic Sea. No! You said that a couple times. And I I was like, I know that I know what you're talking about. I said it so many times. Oh, you should have corrected me the first time. I was so snarky about what you got wrong. And then you just let me say the Black Sea that many times. I don't teach European history. It's fine. Okay, well, so just go back and re-listen to this whole episode. And anytime I say the Black Sea, just think she means the Baltic Sea. Great. Talk to you later so much for listening isn't she delightful and again go follow her at two pool for school really anywhere on social media on youtube whatever especially if you're listening and you are an ap european history student or teacher she's also in charge of the ultimate review pack for ap european history and she's gonna have a lot of great youtube resources there for you throughout the year as a friendly reminder, the best way to support this podcast, if you like the content that I'm creating, is to join my Patreon. Patreon.com slash antisocial studies. The lowest membership is $3 a month. It's just a really simple and kind way to give me a little bit of support, help me pay my producer Ryan, help me kind of justify taking some time out of my now teaching schedule again. I'm back teaching U.S. history at my high school in Austin um, and create content like this, which I love to do. Even if you can't support financially, you can still go join my Patreon community now. There's an option to kind of join for free you won't get any of the bonus episodes or any of the bonus content that i put on patreon but you can still show your support and also if you would just share this podcast and share my content with a few people who you think would find it interesting go on and give a review of this podcast hopefully be nice but you can be honest just share it and let more people know that i exist and that alone is doing so much to support me and my work and i really really appreciate it all right talk to you next week